This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color. I'm Tony Lepstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Well, I don't know. It's good, but I don't know how happy I'll be. My name is Bayo Akomalafe, and I'm from Nigeria, which is, to those of you who don't know it, it's east of Wakanda. <laughs> you know, I want to greet you all and say thank you for coming. And there's a lot to say. There's a lot to share. There's a lot to think through together. We're here to talk about agency and change and justice and power and what it means to be alive in these times. A few things about why we're here this night. There's a word, since we're in a church, there's a word that I love. It's called Selah in the Bible. It appears about 70 times in the book of Psalms. After every verse in a particular chapter, the word Selah appears. So the verse might be, Sing! And praise God or something like that, and then to end with Selah. What does Selah mean? There's a lot of consensus today that the word Selah means pause. This is where you become still. This is where you stop talking or stop singing praise. This is the place where you slow down. I think we're here to pause, to slow down, to take a deep breath. Everyone take a deep breath with me. Just take a deep breath and exhale. I think mostly our work today as a people is to touch our wounds, to touch the places where we're broken. And maybe that's the modest work we can do as a people. So I welcome you with those words. I welcome the confusion. I welcome the gaps and the silences that will not be filled. And I welcome you all again. So I'd like to begin with a story by one of my mentors, Ursula Le Guin. The story is called, The Ones Who Walk Away From Omelas. So I'll start first by saying, can everyone here imagine with me the most perfect world imaginable? That is, I believe we're a conscientious people here. We're working hard to make a more beautiful world happen. Now imagine that actually miraculously happens that the world at the other side of your activism and agency springs to life and emerges. What would that look like? So let's participate and interact with each other. What does that world look like? No fear, 
No police brutality. What else? Tell me. Homes for everyone. Thank you. Clean water for everyone. Oneness with everything. What else? Love from the earth or love for the earth. Right? Okay. Both. Universal basic income. Restoration of all ecosystems. Okay. Renewal of extinct species. So all the millions of species that have died come back, right? And where? Is there death in any of these worlds? Death? Is there death? Dying? There's dying too. Okay, so if there's dying, there's sickness, right? Is there sickness? No. Dying is like switching ourselves off, like we just switch off, right? Keep those imaginations in mind. Imagine such a world exists where there's a concatenation, an entanglement of all our best desires, all the promises that come with doing the work that we do. And it happens in this city called Omelas. So Omelas, according to the narrative of this story, is a beautiful, happy city. It is vibrant. It's not happy in the hippie sort of way, in the, uh, oh, I'm happy. It's, it's happy in a grounded noble, culturally proficient kind of way. It's a happiness that knows itself. It has backing from architectural achievements, ecological health, and all of this. So it's not the, I'm high in a moment. It's real, carnal, tactile happiness. And everyone loves the other person. Everyone is working for the other person's good, where no one is invisible. That's Omelas. Except... Imagine, if you will, that in Omelas, in a basement somewhere in the city, there is a tiny child in a wardrobe in that basement. It's cold, it's dank, it's forgotten. And in this beautiful, utopian, perfect, everyone is happy city, with moral achievements and scientific achievements and cultural backings and all of that, this girl exists. And every moment, she's sticking out her scrawny hands and saying, help me, please, anyone, I'll be good. Please help me, anyone. Now, you would think that in such a city, no one knows about this child. Well, the reverse is actually the case because everyone knows about this girl. Now, I cannot describe her misery enough. You would have to find the short story yourself. But imagine boils all over her skin. Imagine her hair is falling out. Imagine that the author was so in touch with her misery and her suffering that she refused to genderize her. She called her an it. It's an it. It's reduced to a thing. And this it sticks out the hand and begs for food, begs for mercy, begs for kindness. But it doesn't come. Once in a while, the door to that cold, dank basement opens up and a man steps in and kicks some food to the girl, to the it. Every Saturday, a procession of people walk by parents and their children to educate their children about the child. No one says a word of kindness to this child. No one. You're not allowed to. You're not even allowed to smile or to wave or to say, it'll be all right. You just supposed to pass by without helping the child. 
Now, how is this possible? Well, it so happens that the city made a deal with an unknown entity. And the deal is everyone, millions and millions of people in that city will be happy. Happy as you want them to be. But their happiness is eternally premised on the suffering of this child. This child will have to suffer for you to be happy. In the day that you smile to this child, it's all gone. Your scientific achievements, your knowledge, your cultures, your rites of passage, your rituals, everything disappears. Now, some people can't take this because there's nothing they can do. But they can't take this, and so they walk away from Omelas. They go past the fields, past the steeples, past Notre Dame, past all the achievements, and they just wander and go away. We don't know where they go, and the book ends that way. I'd like us to do a quick exercise. What would you do if you were in Omelas? Would you save the child? How many of you think you would save the child? Knowing, as I said, that millions of people will die, other kids will die. What would you do? Any bright ideas? <laughs> happiness isn't everything. Life is bigger than happiness. I like how we're chopping away the thing we once embraced. Forget happiness now. <laughs> it's a false happiness. It's a if false it's happiness. dependent upon one person suffering and doesn't come from the whole community working together. Actually, it is real in the story. <laughs> the story insists that this is real. I took pains to describe to you that this is real happiness. It's communal, it's beautiful, it's that kind of happiness. <laughs> well, my view is that to experience happiness, you've also got to know sadness. To know joy, there has to be some other experience that you can pose that again. So it would bother me, the idea of having communal happiness, but not having the contrast. Right. And I would try and save the girl, and then we would still have choice as a community to try and save each other and support each other in our suffering. Except that in the moment you save the child, there won't be a we any longer, because everyone disappears. Do you know the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Do you know the snap of Thanos? <laughs> Everyone disappears, turns to dust, dies, gone. Poof, zilch. <laughs> that kind of nothingness. What would you do, sir? <laughs> yes? I'm just wondering, how do we know that that's going to happen? Like. How, how do I know that's going to happen? Yeah. It's in the contract with the unknown being. But is it a story that they're holding on to? Like, it isn't a story. I know it's in a story, but right. like this, this idea that this pact that they made, how real is that? Like, how do they know? How it's very real. Really? <laughs> it's real. <laughs> so real. I like how we're... Yeah, yeah, let's, let's take one more there. Could you go and find one of the wanderers who had come through the community and ask them to come back and free the child, and because they're not a part of the community, everything Oh, I like the Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> the, the, the I always Holmesian. wanted to be Sherlock Holmes. 
Like, no, that doesn't help because once the child is saved or helped in any way, it's still the same result. Anyone else want to try for a thousand dollars? Is there afterlife in this story? Is no, the, there's no afterlife. No, there's no afterlife. Damn it. <laughs> afterlife doesn't resolve it. It's the now life. Then I'd say just bring it all down. Bring it down. Everyone, let's make a clean start. But there's nothing to start with if there's no one that exists, right? Perfect. Okay, so let's, let's hold the tension of that. The happiness of a million to the misery of one child. What weighs more? I mean, let's bring it down home. Let's bring it down away from Omelas to Victoria. I don't know if there are trains here, but there's a philosopher's thought experiment that says if you had some kind of control to save a train that was going off course, that was going to fall off a cliff, and you have the control, but the only other option is if it runs through your building, your home, where your child is, which would you go for? Would you save your child and let the train go and other children and families die off? Or would you sacrifice your child for that? It's a tough thought experiment. But the last one, sir, because you obviously want to say something. Well, I would like to say that I will save the children on the train, but realistically, I won't. I will save my own child. That's very honest and vulnerable. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you all. There's another response. We don't know how to deal with this. Because the story of Omelas is not as fictional as we might take it to be. It actually is, in many senses, real. Most of the Locke series we enjoy as people today are heavily subsidized by other realities that have been invisibilized, that have been rendered invisible. So the costs, the real costs of our everyday lives, we don't get to see, we don't get to come to touch. And so we are at a crossroads. What do we do here? What do we do with this issue? What do we do with the child? What do we do with our lives? How do we understand which is right or wrong? Are we even asking the right questions when we say this is right or this is wrong? Let me take us deeper into the story and why I say we've come to a crossroad. When I was little, there was the promise of the future. I grew up watching Chuck Norris and Arnold Schwarzenegger and British broadcasters and everyone inviting me to speak like a British or American person and forget my own language because my language was a primitive thing. So today I don't even speak my language. The more educated you are, the more cut off from context you become. And so I was invited to look towards the future, a future where the promise of the future was a future where everyone is connected, they're flying cars. We don't have to work as hard as we do today. Remember the American dream? Is there a Canadian dream? Okay. American light. Lots of trees. Okay. Get everything that America, America has except for being America. Yeah. So America light, like she said. 
Um, it, it was not just American light, it was everything light because we adopted the same dream. Good roads, skyscrapers, high GDP, no work, you know, because of technology, we would all have to be lazy, you know, everyone would be rich, everyone would have a wife and two kids. That dream was the dream of the future. It was a dream of enlightenment, if you will. We were not supposed to be sad at this point in time. Sorry, I keep on referring to Hollywood tropes because I love those stories. There's the movie Back to the Future. Does anyone know Back to the Future? In Back to the Future, the year, what year was the future in Back to the Future? 20, 20 what? 2015 was the future. Now it's the past, right? And there was a beautiful thing that happened recently celebrating that film where they come and they're like, surely now they're self-lacing sneakers, right? Surely, right now, you have non-dictatorial government. Surely, everyone loves one another. Surely, all these things are in the future. And then the person in 2015 says, and this happened in 2015, no, none of this. Right now, we take selfies. Right now, there's depression. Right now, we have this person. Right now, we have this person. Right now, we have this phenomenon. None of the things that were supposed to happen, happened. Somewhere along the way, we lost our way to heaven, if you will. And so the future didn't come. The future didn't pay off. What happened? We have rising depression, feelings of emptiness, increasing consumption. We're eating more. We don't have Black Friday where I come from, but we're inching closer to having that because that's the deal. That's the American way. And we're trying our darndest to look like you, to be like you guys. And so we have McDonald's and we insist that we're not a hole when Trump says we're a hole country. Because we insist on being proud and we insist on having well-laid roads and buildings as well. If only we recognize that a pothole might be a portal to other ways of being in the world instead of the flatness of asphalt. But today we have racism. I remember in Nigeria when Obama became president, it was now we're in a post-racial world now is the turn of the black race. But that didn't happen either. I still get pulled over at airports for random searches that are increasingly not random. We have um, furniture activism is what I call it. When activism starts to look like the thing that it's fighting against, when protest just becomes a by-the-way or by-the-book thing, it becomes part of the city's processes part of its gestational, you know, dynamics for the city to have a protest. Oh, it's just a protest. And then we have ecological devastation and climate change. All these things were not supposed to happen. Education as exacerbation of the problems we're living in. Today in India, it has the highest suicide rates in the world for teenagers. And that's because India is trying so hard to be like the West to be another superpower. And that percolates, that simmers and floats down to the schools where teachers are working so hard to teach kids to get A's and not just A's, A+. You have to be top-notch, you have to be excellent. And if you fall below that standard, you're shamed, you're kicked out, or you're branded a failure. 
So kids just go out on the rail tracks and just jump. It happens behind our home. Suicide rates in India among teenagers because they're branded failures, because they have to catch up. It's a catch-up imperative. All of these problems, including the Anthropocene, you might have heard of the term, the age of man, the time when everything is entangled, the time when carbon dioxide is emitted, the time when we seem to have radically altered the face of the planet, that the, face, that the planet that our ancestors and our fathers and mothers lived on is not the same one we're living on today. The Anthropocene is this time of messiness, a time of loss and grief. So what do we do about the Anthropocene? What do we do about these problems? What do we do about the issues we're confronting as activists, as people? The question, what do we do? What do we do? What do I do? How do I resolve the girl in Omelas? What do we do as people? How do we face racism, climate change, all of these matters? How do we face them? Let me tell you a story. In the story of Job, here's this man asking questions like we are. What do I do about this? You know, I went by the book. I obeyed all the commandments. I'm good. I'm fundamentally good, like most of us believe we are here. You know? I'm a good person. They are the bad guys. It's the red-capped people that are the bad guys. It's the conservatives that are the bad guys. I'm progressive. I'm liberal. I'm a white ally. I do everything right. I shouldn't be suffering. And, of course, if you read the story of how he suffered and the boils and the sicknesses and he lost his family and all his friends told him, curse God, and he said no, he still insisted on being good. And one day, God granted him audience and came to him, and he posed his questions to God. Now, if you went to a doctor, if you had a headache, and he said, Doctor, I'm having a headache, and the doctor said, So what do you think happens at the end of Spider-Man? You would, you would leave, right? <laughs> it's not the right context for that. Or if you went to a psychologist, or, or maybe you're getting married and the pastor says, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? And you say, um, does the Pope wear sneakers? <laughs> Something like that. Something outrageous, bizarre, having nothing to do with the question, is returned back to you. That was how it was with Job. Job asks God, why do good people suffer? And God said, very strangely, God says, have you seen Pleiades? Do you know how the constellation Orion is formed? Have you seen a deer? Have you seen Leviathan? Have you seen any of these things that had nothing to do with the question that was asked? And I wondered and pondered this for a long time. And I came to this realization that sometimes the best response to a question is not an answer, is bewilderment, is the gift of bewilderment. Because what bewilderment does is that it takes you away from the logic of the question and brings you to other ways of seeing the world. You know, this is why elders, my elders would say the times are urgent, let us slow down. Because sometimes we ask questions that invite the specific answers that they're entangled with, and we're locked in a cycle of question and answer, question and answer, arrival and departure, and nothing breaks that cycle. So we need confusion. Our elders will also say, in order to find your way, you must become lost. 
when you become lost, you would find other ways of being present. And so, the invitation here was to lose the question a bit. Because the gift here wouldn't have been the answer. The gift was something more peculiar. A bewildering response. Bewilderment. And bewilderment is what leads me to this figure. Because we're at a crossroads as a people, as a species. The Anthropocene is a crossroads. It's where matter and meaning meets. It's where binaries break down. It's where the independence of humanity breaks down and meets ecology and culture. That which was once outside and exterior is now mingling with us. We can no longer draw the line where we start and where we stop from each other anymore. We're entangled with geology, with stones, with rocks, with clouds, with wind, with everything. This is what the Anthropocene teaches us. This is what it instigates. New stories of messiness, new stories of our composting bodies. It's a crossroads. And I like to say this, that if you've been walking forward down a path, walking forward down a path, and you come to an intersection, you actually haven't been walking forward after all. Because at an intersection, there are many other roads that queer your idea of directionality. And so we thought we're walking forward. We're making progress. We're walking forward as a people. We're going to the promised land. And then we came to a crossroads. And forward doesn't look like forward anymore. And this is the reason why I wrote to Trump when he called Nigeria a hole. And I said, you do not know the greatness of shit. <laughs> I doubt he read my letter. But I invited him to see that shit is not as shitty. You do it, I do it. In India, they smear shit, cow shit on the wall to bless a home. You haven't met shit yet, sir. You haven't met shit yet, is what I wrote to him. And I told him not to mind all my Nigerian companions that were saying, no, we're not a shithole country. I said, yes, we are a shithole country. But I'd rather be a shithole country than a country that is leaning on the precipice of disaster, of climate change. I'd rather be a shithole. I'd rather be intimate with my own productions <laughs> than be in a Marxist fashion taken away from those productions. So this guy is the guy who emerges from the crossroads. Now, that's not a pretty picture because he resists representation. In the Yoruba pantheon, there's a guy called Eshu. Eshu, E-S-U. In Brazil, it's E-X-U, still Eshu. Eshu is the youngest member of a pantheon of gods, the trickster. He's the one that disturbs linearities. He's the one that reveals inherent interconnectedness between binaries. You think you're white? Haha. <laughs> you think you're faithful? No. You think you're good? Issue is the one that disturbs these things. He lurks, he lingers, and he melts binaries and shows you that you're the other side that you're trying to defeat. The story about issue is this. When the missionaries came to Nigeria, came to Africa, the slave coast it was called, they had a strategy. So they had tried colonization. Let me step aside. I like to jump here, take quantum leaps here and there. Colonization is sometimes understood as stealing the wealth of other people. That's not the idea here. Colonization is not about stealing other people's wealth. 
it might involve that, but it's not the central idea, I dare say. Colonization is about reinventing the frames of reference of a people so that the way they make sense of things changes, right? So if to colonize another is basically to say, the relationship you have with that mountain no longer makes sense. That mountain is a thing to you now. So blow it and build a highway there. It's changing the relational dynamics in a place. That's what colonization is. So that's what's lost. That's what is sometimes irretrievably lost when colonization happens. It's about loss. It's about loss of relationship, loss of meaning, loss of stories, loss of agency. When the missionaries came, they came with a dualistic set of principles, good versus evil. They needed a boogeyman, however, for this to work. In order to preach a certain faith, a certain way of thinking about the world, they presented God. That was easy to translate. In Yoruba land, they had Olodumare. So they basically just translated God as Olodumare. But they ran into a problem because the Yoruba people had no Satan. How do you preach to people that they're going to hell if there's no devil in their philosophy? So they searched far and wide. Who's the guy that we need to change? Just like they did with Pan. And when Pan became the figure with his hooves and his horns, became the figure of the devil, they did to Eshu. So they basically looked through the pantheon and they brought out the one who was the most troublesome, Orisha, or God. And they took that name and they made him Eshu. So today, Eshu is known as the devil. But I have a belief, I have, a, I have some suspicions that if you went to issue today, because in Nigeria right now, there's some kind of underground activism. There's a hashtag for it even. Issue is not the devil. Issue is not the devil. But I have a belief that issue doesn't mind. Like if you went to issue and said, you're the devil, would be like, interesting. <laughs> he doesn't mind. Because identity is fluid with issue. Eshu has a penis and a vagina. Eshu is a man and a woman. It is said that Eshu slept in a big building like this and there was no space and it was uncomfortable. Then Eshu marched and went to a seed and he finally could stretch himself. It is said that Eshu threw a stone today and killed a bird yesterday. He disturbs time, he disturbs linearities, he disturbs identities. So to call him the devil is to reveal some things about the devil and reveal some things about himself. There's a material interaction taking place over there. Well, they called issue the devil, and people are against that today. But like I said, I don't think he'll mind. So these are some things about issue. He's a man of the crossroads. They call him the man of the crossroads. And I feel he's the deity of the Anthropocene. That when we're at a crossroads, this figure arises. He emerges with new questions and new ways of thinking about ourselves. He's the Orisha who wields Ashe. I don't know if you guys have heard people saying Ashe. You've heard people saying Ashe, Ashe. No? Yes? No? Ashe means agency. The power of things to change. The ongoingness of things. It's not Amen. That was another travesty. To say Asher is amen. Asher is more than so be it. Asher is the wondrousness of things. 
how things become other things, how things lose shape and shapeshift. It's said that issue holds a share in his hands and sits at the crossroads, the man-woman of the crossroads. I also said that he disturbs stability. He uncovers the duplicity and the multiplicity of things. Is this power or is this not power? Is there something else here? Has anyone here done a DNA ancestry test? Do you watch YouTube reaction videos? <laughs> Those are very beautiful research tools. The ethnography of modern people. One of them, this obviously black lady, finding out she's not black. And she cried on that video. She found out she's not a black person. It is the comments. The comment section is always more enlightening. And someone in the comment section said, oh, no problem, I'll send you your white card. <laughs> I'll send you your whiteness card. You're no longer black, so you can no longer play the black race card, if you will. Issue disturbs your claims to identity, that you're this other than that. Stability is the process of modernity. What modernity enacts and effects is stability. Is to say, you're this, not that. Tick the box and stick within that box. But in the time of the Anthropocene, things are spilling into each other. We're in the age of spill, so that we're becoming multiple, and we can no longer stick within our racial enactments like modernity would have us do. Issue speaks all languages. He disturbs time, destabilizes identity. He loves to travel. All the gods, all the children of Olodumare, the supreme god, came to him, and he gave them all gifts. Ogun, the god of iron, said, I want to be in charge of metals. Oya says, I want to do this. Yemoja says, I want to be in charge of the seas, the oceans. And Eshu was asked, what would you like to do? He said, I just want to be everything. I just want to go anywhere I want to go. And so he got to be the one to travel with the slaves from Africa to the Caribbean. And I'll tell you that story shortly. So Eshu's work of genius then, his teaching, this is his particular teaching, and this concerns us as activists, as parents, as children, as brothers, as sisters, living and gestating in the Anthropocene. This is the invitation of Eshu. This is why we say the time is urgent, let us slow down. This is it right here. Eshu's work of genius is a powerful teaching that for us as we grapple with justice and agency in this time. His genius is the middle passage. As in, you know what the middle passage is? The triangular trade, the middle passage is that stretch of the journey from Africa to the West. That's called the middle. And it's called the middle passage because it was the middle of a triangle that went from Africa to the West, the West to Europe, and Europe back to Africa. So that was called the triangular trade. That's the transatlantic slave trade right there. The middle passage was the one that took the slaves to their new homes. And I say that's Issue's work of genius. I'll tell you why. So that's how it looks like, the middle passage. That was the one, the one beneath there is the one that took enslaved Africans to the Caribbean, to North America, to Brazil. I was just in Brazil recently. Brazil is the second largest black nation on earth. 55 million black people. And all of them, most of them chant Issue because Eshu traveled with them. He conducted new materialist experiments and uncovered domination. He broke the power of power. 
You might have seen pictures like this. The stories of the enslaved ones as they traveled. I'm still learning to come to grips with this. This came out in 1788, I believe. Regulated slave trade. It describes some of the conditions on, on a slave ship, the Guinea men, as they were called. In a slave ship, bodies were crammed together. About 400 bodies, 454 bodies in a ship. Each slave, each captive person had six feet to one foot and four inches to move and shackled to the hull of the ship. They had about two feet of space to move their head. And this came out as part of the work of people who were trying to abolish slave trade in Britain. But it described the condition, and this is one of the highlights. It showed how people lived in these ships. Because sometimes those ships would pack up to 600 people, squeeze them. The conditions were so dire that, you know, in one of these accounts, to relieve oneself, to put it delicately, you would have to climb over bodies. This is Omelas. You'd have to climb over bodies to defecate. But sometimes it was too difficult to even get there, and so they did it where they were. Some of them went mad. Some of them jumped overboard, refusing to continue life if it meant living in this kind of misery. Pictures like this are emblematic of the kinds of suffering that subsidizes our lives today. So we know a lot about the slave trade. We know that 11 million or more people went from Africa over 400 years. We know some of their names. At least we know the names that they were changed to at the point of disembarkation. We know some of their tribes. We know the names of the ships. But sometimes we think it's done. Don't talk about this. It's done. You know, it's barbaric. We've moved past that. You know, we're good now. Let's go ahead. This is progress. Don't talk about the slave trade. But I think we're still living in it. I think the conditions for that reality are still present and alive with us right now. So that I might dare say that we haven't left those ships, all of us. We're still right there. Why do I say that? See, we live in modern settlements that demarcate bodies, that arranges lives and bodies according to their proximity to power. This is what some people call whiteness. Not to label people, but to describe how bodies are preferred. So certain bodies are given privilege and stay on the upper deck. The not quite human occupy another deck and then there's a metabolic rift entirely with the non-human world. Racism is not just about bodies, it's about the planet as well. It's how we've arranged ourselves. It's like the Tower of Babel. We're enacting escape. We're trying to escape our conditions. We're trying to arrive. This is all an assemblage of fear and separation and exclusivism. We practice being selves in modern settlements, selves that are unique and have private subjectivities that are separate from yours. We're atoms of consumerism and capitalism. And we do this every time. We're conditioned to think of ourselves as selves, 
to think of ourselves as separate, to think of ourselves as unique. And so the motivation here, like I said, is escape. It's running away. It's escaping the materiality of our land and trying to transcend. We're still trying to transcend. These are the conditions that lead to the colonization and the subjugation of life on earth or others that do not look like us. Think of a cartography, a map, if you will, that might describe for us what's happening today. We have an upper deck, which, is, which features the metaphysics of individualism, or individuals, or we're humans. And to be human is to be above the non-human, is to be above the not quite human. This is also about what some people call white privilege. That is not something to be necessarily guilty about. It's just a state of things that refers to the structure of society. And white guilt. White guilt is the complex of all these things coming together. But white guilt is not going to be upended by white virtue. Because white virtue is also part of the furniture of this upper deck. So if you're being good, you know, it's still part of the furniture of the upper deck. No matter how good you are, I'll be good, I'll be an ally. It's a good strategy. But sometimes, most of the time, it feeds back into reinforcing the structures. Because goodness is sometimes how we escape the meaninglessness of things. It's how we reassure ourselves that there is purpose and a trajectory and meaning to things. But I like what indigenous people say, that there are more than 99 senses, and making sense of the world is only one of those senses. Most of the world translates into nonsense and meaninglessness. It's only human colonization that insists on the line everything with meaning and saying there's a story and meaning for everything. And that is what allows us to colonize things, to say it's our story that counts, it's our own point of view that counts, the tree has no say. The mountain has no say. Our story is what makes sense. This is all the agency of the upper deck. Self as performance of exteriority. In the middle deck is the not quite human. So remember, this already shows that activism is already inherently racial. It's not like you can add racial justice issues to activism. It's already racial by the fact that we live and gestate in modernity, which is a racial assemblage. It's a racial apparatus. And then the lower deck is the non-human. Look at activism right there, if you can see it. Justice itself is part of the upper deck. Sometimes the way we understand justice is only to reinforce the same things we're trying to escape. Justice is framed mostly as inclusion versus exclusion. Let's bring other people to the table. Let's bring other people to the upper deck. But that only reinforces the binary between the upper deck and the lower deck. So it's inclusion versus exclusion. Let's bring more people in. But the more you bring more people in, no matter how many people you bring in, there's still going to be people left out. It's like the French Revolution got rid of the king, but it left the throne. It left the furniture of oppression in place. This is the furniture of oppression. And sometimes the wave, the outside world, untamed, turbulent, comes in. That's the Anthropocene. The climate change, that is grief. What we've learned to do as a people is to pathologize it. And so as a psychologist, 
if you're experiencing things that doesn't fit into the framework of neurotypicality or sanity, we pathologize it. We say you're mad, and we open madhouses and we lock you up. It's how we've learned to shut away that which doesn't make sense, that which isn't intelligible within our hall, within our ship. So you can see that we never disembarked. We're still there. We're still on the slave ships, and we're hurting each other, and we're hurting the planet. And most of our activisms tend to reproduce the same issues we're trying to run away from. And I can tell you this from experience, as a person living in a country that has heavy activism, lots of activism that people are getting rich from, lots of financial aid coming in to help us, to help our people. But in the end, people just get rich off their good works and well-intentioned projects. They have flashy logos and all the works, but lives are not being affected. So I carved out a concept called post-activism. And by post-activism, I do not refer to after-activism. I'm not trying to present some kind of new flashy thing that says we've left activism alone. What I'm trying to invite is a new way of thinking about who we are as a people and where we are as a species. What post-activism tells us is that we never left the ships. It tells us that we work with and within assemblages. We are not the agents of change. The agent of change is not us. We try to centralize agency in us. And that's, well, let me call it a mistake of humanism. It's about us. It's what I can do. And so we ask, what can I do? Forgetting that the world is also agentic and alive. Because when you centralize agency in human beings, then you're basically saying that everything else is dead. And it's just a resource. And we have to get our act together to make things happen. But my elders teach me that the world is alive. It's also active. Because if you know it's alive, then you sit down and shut up once in a while. You sit down and be silent once in a while. I tell the story all the time of my daughter leading me. We're in Richmond, and I woke up one morning and I said, you know what, I'm going to say yes to anything my daughter says. She was two years old. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. But I said, I'm going to do you know, an experiment in unschooling. I'm going to do anything she says, because in the Anthropocene, we're also learning to treat our children as elders. Issue is flipping the script. So <laughs> children now come out of the earth. They don't come into the earth. They come out of the earth, dragging the textures of wisdoms gone before and bringing it up with them. They're not tabula rasas. They're not empty slates. They're alive with the wisdoms of ancestors that are still enfolded in the thick present. And so when they come out, we learn to pay homage to the multiple that is lingering with them before we send them to school and shut them up. So I said, I'm going to do anything she says today. She's not yet in school. I don't think we're going to send her to school. We're still experimenting. And she's two. And she says, okay, Dada, let's go swim. You know, taking all her chances. And I said, okay, let's go swim. And I can't swim. She holds me by the hand and she drags the swimming pool around the corner. I figure that I could wade with her, you know, pretend to be swimming, get by, you know, that kind of thing. But there's also a lake further down. And as we're heading to the swimming pool, I expect her to take a right, but she's going straight to the lake. And I'm like, you know, that's the swimming pool right here. But she says, no, that's the swimming pool. <laughs> so I said I wasn't going to say no to her. I say, yes, that's the swimming pool. 
And so we head towards the swimming pool, lake. And as we're heading there, she says, stop. So I stop. And she says, take off your slippers. So I take it off. And she says, wear mine. <laughs> so I squeeze my size 45 feet into her tiny slippers. And then she wears my giant slippers. And then we're going like this. People are beginning to wonder if there's something wrong at this point. But we head on down. And in a few moments, we're at the lake, just standing there at the lakeside. And she says and does absolutely nothing. She's just there, looking. Two-year-old child, just looking. And you know that awkward silence that you try to stuff with stuff because it's getting too awkward, even with someone that's even close to you. So I decide maybe this is a good Kodak moment, right? I could tell her about her people. Let me tell her about her grandfather who died before she had the chance to meet him. Let me tell her some great and noble thing. Maybe I could write about it later on Facebook. <laughs> and so I lean close and I say, Alethea, I just thought I wanted to tell you. And she says, Shh. Yes, it's the experiment. So I just keep quiet. And we're standing there, two awkward figures just standing by the lake doing nothing. Now, what happens next is not miraculous in the conventional sense of the word miraculous. It's very normal, and yet it's transversal. It's something very different. It's a shift, but barely noticeable. The clouds don't part. Moses doesn't come down. I don't get a halo on my head. I don't levitate, but something happens. In that moment, I notice everything. And I don't know how else to put it except to say that I notice everything. Like everything just bursts into color, into life. It's amazing what a few moments of deliberate silence does with one's daughter, standing by the lakeside in Richmond, specifically. And I hear the ducks are quacking. And I heard them before, but I hear them now. I really hear them. And the wind is rustling through the leaves and doing some things to the leaves. And, and I hear it. It's like I notice it. I like notice a presence. Things become like beings around me. I notice an ant. You know, you, you don't get to see these things all the time except you really look for them. Just barely noticeable, just scurrying through the grass, through the blades of grass, like a bridge over it, and just hurrying along. Just an ant, just a single ant. And it's, so I've never found the words to explain it, but I feel like everything is alive, like things are doing something. I don't have to do something. So it's like from doing something to something doing. Something is doing something. Like the world is in process. It's moving. It's speaking all the time. And I leave that moment. Well, I haven't exactly left it, but it's like I sigh. Like this is Selah. It's the pause that makes everything vibrant. It's the part where we breathe that makes the music alive that is silent, that yet gives the music its musicality. And I'm interrupted in my levitating, transcendent moment by my daughter. And she says, put this mud on your face. <laughs> it spoiled the whole thing, but I decide, <laughs> I, I decide to do it. So I put the mud on my face and she says, eat it. And I said, that's it. We're going home. So I stopped the experiment and we head right back home with more than our faces, people looking at us and pointing and 
get back into the house, EJ, my wife, is there, and she's just looking at us as we're coming in, and I'm about to explain. She says, I don't want to hear a word of it. Just go wash up, and she points her hand, and we wash ourselves up, and I write all the time that the stains that don't come off are the realization that everything is connected, and I don't have to shift things on my own energy, that I'm part of something larger than myself. And maybe part of what we have to do as a people today is to learn to be defeated over and over again. Defeated by things greater than us. An activism that calls to the animatedness, the animacy of the world that is supposedly outside of us. Those stains haven't come off. So post-activism is this realization of the animatedness, the vibrancy of matter. It also says the problems we face are not exterior to us. We're going to combat climate change. It's not a thing to combat. You know, climate change is not the clouds swirling outside of our windows. Climate change is our windows and us looking outside the windows. It's the whole assemblage. There was a conference that I went to that was talking about poverty and hunger in the world. And I remember us deliberating about hunger and poverty, why we ate large bowls of chicken. You know, hunger in the world. Hmm. These things are not exterior to us. We're participating. The world is a largely participatory, entangling place. So we cannot afford the luxury, the costs of thinking of ourselves as removed from the things we're trying to fix. Just to look is to alter the things we're looking at. To explain something is not to bring some underlying philosophy or explanation to explain it. To explain something is to alter the thing we're explaining. Like if I asked you, what are you thinking? I'm not trying to access the thoughts you were thinking prior. I've already altered the thoughts you're thinking just by asking, what are you thinking? Now, let me ask a quick experiment. Everyone here, do not think of a polar bear. Do not think of a polar bear. Do not think of a polar bear. You just did, right? How many of you did? Good. It's called the Dostoevsky effect. There's a name for these things. We know that we're clueless. We know that we're entangled. We know that thought itself is fragile. So we cannot do that. Climate change is there. We're here. We're going to fix it. It's the reason why Karen Barad, one of my mentors, says there are no solutions. There's only an aliveness to our accountability to a world that is ongoing. Paraphrasing her. Goodness will not suffice. Goodness sometimes compensates for meaninglessness. How many of you really try to be good with omelas? You try to be good, but you run into trouble. Goodness is part of this furniture. It's the myth of redemptive violence, as Walter Wink would put it, that I can step in there and save the day. Like if only those Trumpian figures could just understand. If only Popeye, Bluto, they fight all the time, right? They beat each other, they repeat the same cycle every time. Spinach. Beating him up, coming again, beating him up, never learning about how to approach each other. It's the same cycle that repeats itself. The idea is this myth in our understanding that if only I could vanquish the other side, then we win. Post-activism, it talks about the irony of victory. That sometimes when we win, we've lost. And sometimes in a game of sides, we lose the other side. So, issue teaches us something about agency and justice and change. And this is what I think it teaches us. I was in Brazil in November last year, 
and I was walking through one of the favelas in Rio de Janeiro. I had just done some talks, so they were taking me around and showing me places. And I wandered by a school, and they took me into that school. And as I went past some of the furniture in that place where children were playing and reading to themselves, I walked past some rag dolls made with cloth. And I just wandered by. It wasn't interesting to me. And the lady that I was showing me around insisted on telling me what that was. She says, you know Abayomi? I said, what? She said, Abayomi. And I'm like, say that again. <laughs> she says, Abayomi. Now, the reason why I said say that again is that Abayomi is the name of my father. And Abayomi is the name of my son. And Abayomi is very significant to me. But Abayomi, that name in Brazil, a Yoruba name in Brazil, obviously I understand how that is so because most of the Yoruba people went to Brazil. They were taken to Brazil and those cultures and traditions lingered. And this is Abayomi. But I was questioning, why is this name Abayomi? Now, this is the story about this ragdoll, because this ragdoll is a figure of post-activism. It's an invitation for us to rethink the ways we embrace or approach or engage our issues and the problems that are haunting us as a species today. It is said that on those ships, those slave ships, something happened. This is speculative fabulation here. We don't have exact accounts that this is what happened, but I think this is what happened. A mother is holding the child, and the child is restless, crying, of course. In such circumstances, there's nothing else to do but cry. It's Auschwitz, it's despair, it's depression, it's sadness. It's the lowest of the low. The child is crying, babies crying. And the mother is doing the best, probably breastfed the child, nothing. And the mother is doing the best to just hold the child and comfort the child. Nothing happens. In that moment, a shoe intervenes. And the mother happens upon an idea. And what she does is that she takes a bit of a cloth, black cloth. She tears it and makes herself naked. But she doesn't mind because they're all naked anyway. But she strips it open and she weaves a rag doll in that moment and uses it to pacify the child. And the child actually gets pacified and goes to sleep. The most remarkable thing in the most dire circumstances Hope in the land of hopelessness. Hope in the most inhospitable conditions you could imagine. And she names that moment Abayami. She names the doll Abayami. Why Abayami? Abayami is actually a Yoruba name. I was telling a new friend of mine that Yoruba names are stories. We actually just kind of reduce them to names. If we told you our real names, they will be lengthy as books. Abayami is actually Ota Ibayomi. That's the real stretched out version of Abayami. And what that means is that they thought they could bury me, but I was a seed. The enemy would have defeated me, but God intervened. That's the meaning, the story of Abayami. So Abayami right there talks about the duplicity of power. That even in a slave ship, the domination and the subjugation was not totalizing there was still a kernel of hope in those circumstances. Abayomi, I would have been buried, but I was a seed. And they thought they'd vanquished me, but I could rise. They thought they were making stripes on my back with every whip, but they were making crossroads and they were undoing us both. 
Both of us were undone in the moment of my subjugation, and we were becoming something different. A biomy is the diffraction, the querying of power, the noticing that there are other ways of relating to the world. Let me end with this. This is the work that a biomy invites us to do. I call it witnessing. Witnessing, not just to witness. To witness is to observe something and to maintain your luxurious position of externality. To witness is to become with. Is to notice that we're shape shifting. The real work, I believe, of activism today is not just to feel good about the things we're doing because that's part of the furniture of the opera deck. It's not just to try to fix things and create solutions. I know that there are different specific circumstances and conditions, and there's no one way to address any of these. But I think that one of the powerful strategies afforded us today is to learn how to meet the invisible, the invisible, the otherwise beneath the decks, not to solve it, but to sit with it, to linger with it, just like I lingered with my child at the lake more than is usual. To linger with the invisible, to be there with grief, not to solve grief, but to linger with grief, not to fix the things quickly, you know, to get in there and fix it. Because most of the time, when we're fixing, we're only making the problems worse. And I can tell you this as a person from the so-called global south: most of the fixings that the West has brought to the south has only made us worse, and we're tired of being fixed. Don't fix us. If you're trying to fix us, then go. But if you come. In the mutuality of our destinies, then you're welcome. If you realize that you're not who you are, that there are other things that are lingering around you, then let's work together. If we can embrace our common multiplicity, our duplicity, then there's something to be done here. So the burden of change is not human. These are the final points. The burden of change is not human. It is not up to us. I see this very strongly in racial justice analysis. How we identify the racist. The portrait of the racist always hones in on the person, as if racism is essential or some evil that is lurking inside a person's heart. He's racist. Racism is the assemblage, is the apparatus, is the structure. Don't try to fix the thing. It's the system. It's the socialization. It's the gentrification. It's the redlining. It's the politics. It's the climate. Is bacterial activism in our bellies? Is the food we eat? This is not just a thing that we can hone in on human beings, because we're no longer human people. We've stopped being human. The Anthropocene has taught us that we've never actually been human. How many of you have heard of the gut brain? The gut brain. You think you're thinking here? Nope. You've been thinking here all along. The food you've been eating has actually helped shape who you are. Sugar. Helped shape the transatlantic slave trade. Sugar, sugar, helped shape the transatlantic slave trade. Not this. The Enlightenment ideas of reason and enlightenment and rationality are being composted today, and we're seeing that we're part of nature, and nature is part of us. We're not superior, after all. So power is neither absolute nor totalizing. The urgency of our larger bodies, our larger metabolism. Is to notice the irony of victory. Our task is not to reinforce the upper deck; is to investigate it, is to linger with the questions. So when people ask me, "So what do we do with all this?" I say, "That's what you should start investigating with. That is 
part of the furniture of the upper deck. Investigate that question. It's not self-evident or ahistorical. Dwell with the question, what do we do? Because that question in itself is part of the furniture of the upper deck. Stay with it as you would stay with a living being, hugging a monster. Live with that question and see where it takes you. This is our invitation today. Not to fix the child in Omelas, because we may not be able to, but to notice that our lives are subsidized by the invisible. And until we learn to live and meet the invisible, we will continue to reproduce the same paradigms that we're trying to escape. So that's the invitation that I leave you with. Thank you. Could you say more about a phrase that you said goodness is a way to compensate for the meaninglessness of things? Goodness compensating for the meaninglessness of things. I'm beginning to study boredom. I don't know if you've looked into it, Carmen. Boredom is a boring thing to study. (laughs) But there are actually very interesting things that have been written about boredom, the phenomenon of boredom. It hasn't been really engaged. But one of the amazing things that I've been reading about it is how boredom is the affect of modernity. Like, it's a feeling that is made possible in a world where humans are centralized. That is, doing centralized, activity centralized. That is why the phenomenon of depression and boredom, which is somewhat correlated, is likely to be spiky and high in a highly industrialized settlement. But in a world where silence is replete with lots of activity, with other voices, a shaman once told me that you've chased away the spirits to the bushes and you have reduced agency and healing to your pills. I was asking questions about hallucination. And I said, how do you fix that? He said, why would you want to fix that? Maybe what you think of as hallucination are the voices of your parents or the yet to come lingering, you know, wanting to listen to you. Now, the things that you think of as a psychological suffering might be a spiritual crisis, but your furniture doesn't know how to deal with that. And so you pathologize it, you judgmentalize it, you bring it out, make it abstract, and you try to fix it. I think goodness is this extrication from a stream of becoming. We're only good if our identities are stable, if we're unitary and exclusive. But if I spill into you and you spill into me, then how does that even apply? How do we even begin to think within those tiny boxes of good versus evil? How do we begin to think that? So approaching the meaninglessness, a world that is beyond story, a world that is beyond my articulation, beyond my subjectivity, means that maybe it's not about being good. Maybe it's about being sensuous. Maybe it's about coming alive to the sensuousness and aliveness of things. And we trap ourselves into these tiny boxes. And I think most of the conversation around racial justice today has been hijacked by this underlying myth and mythology of goodness and white virtue, and trying to be neat and tidy and just being a good white ally. But that only reinforces the dynamics. It's just like what one German guy 
said to me while I was teaching in Schumacher College two years ago. I had just spoken about another incident of being pulled out for random searching. And he came to me and he said, I want to apologize for all the troubles that have come your way. I know I'm a white heterosexual male and I take all the air in the room and I'm really sorry. And he was apologetic and he was very nice and kind and good. And I said, I reject your apology. And I said it gently to him, but he was shocked and was like, oh, even doubling down on this lost sense of goodness. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And I was like, no, no, no. Just hold on a while. If I accept your apology, I will be capitulating to the story, to the narrative that there is only one place of power. That the place of power, the pyramidal scheme that is modernity, is the only way of framing power. You say you take all the air in the room and that you want to give me a seat at the table. But there are other tables in the room. I don't want your seat at the table. There are other places to play. Come into the Rumian field beyond good and evil, beyond your crazy schizophrenic plays of power. There are other powerful places to be in. There's Abayami here. There's this here. There are other ways of relating with the world. I don't want to stay in that box anymore. And I don't know how to do it, but I know things are changing. As things spill into each other, we might lose the mythology. We might lose the language of that mythology. It's very sticky, but I think it's happening. One of the missions that I'm serving is helping disrupt the education paradigm from fear-based to love-based and helping our children connect back to nature, especially with a world that's growing in exponential technology faster than we can even imagine. And I've noticed you have two little kids as well. We have three little boys. And uh, there's an amazing community here on Vancouver Island that's starting a nature-based school and a love-based school. And I'm curious to know, what are some of the principles, practices, rituals that you're having with your children and the children you're around to have these difficult conversations and start sort of breaking the conditioning that we've all brought into our existence? And I'd love to hear some of the conversations and questions you're having. Thanks. Hmm. Principles and practices... Has anyone here been to India? Please, you're invited. It's my new home. It's wonderful. And I think it's a hotbed. Brother, you have Indian connections, right? India is a fascinating place, a land of contrasts, as most of you know already. It was in India that I learned the things I'm learning today about education. Here's a brief tale. There's a university in India called Swaraj University. Swaraj University is a university that has no walls, no lecturers, no CGPAs, no graduation dates, no degrees, no disciplines. Just kojis. They call them kojis, seekers. And they gravitate around the principle of self-directed education. That is, the child or the person who is showing up is not a failure or a success. The person is just experimenting with life. And we as a community would gather around this person to help the person ask good and helpful and illuminating questions on the way to becoming whatever you want to be. That university has an institute called the Institute for Cheating. <laughs> I'm a board member. I'm for real here. I'm a board member of the Institute for Cheating, which encourages kids to look to the right and to the left. It doesn't have to be this way. You know, look behind the book if you want to. Cheat. Life is a cheating process. We cheat to get along. And there are many bold experiments. I don't want to box them into the categories of unschooling, homeschooling, and all those things. But there are 
feverishly rapid developments in, in the alternative sector in education in India. And I'm speaking about India because that's, that's where we're doing what we're doing with our own kids. The questions are still there. There's still some times when we're like, should we send them to school? You know, are we hurting them? You know, if we don't send them to school. So it's an experiment. But let me tell you one principle that we're learning that we feel motivated to share. My wife calls it transparenting. Transparenting. And that is from the idea that parents are not the top dogs anymore. Has anyone here heard of microchimerism? Microchimerism? Microchimerism is a biological discovery. So here's how it goes. In the womb, in the belly of a woman, when the child is growing, cells propagate from the mother to the child, right? That's how it goes. But it's not linear. It's not a one-way street. Because as our instruments got better, we found out that cells propagate from the child to the mother, too. So that it's a co-mothering process. The mothers are not before the child. The child also mothered the mother. So Freud was right when he said the child is the father of the man. It's a co-mothering process. But that's not where the queerness ends. Because when the child leaves the womb, the child leaves cells in the womb so that the sibling comes with the cells of the child too. So that if you have an older sibling, that sibling is in some senses your mother or your father. Does anyone have an older sibling here? <laughs> Go home and said, I'm your father or something. <laughs> they call it microchimerism from the word and I don't think they should have used the word micro. I think we're still addicted to quantum skills when we do that. It's just plain chimerism. Chimerism comes from the word chimera, monstrosity. We're monsters, all of us. You're my mother, I'm your mother. It's queer. Those relational cat-cradling lines we drew neatly have been disturbed. And so we're learning, we extrapolate from that to form an educational principle where we learn from our children where we follow them out into nature, and I don't like the term nature, as if outside is nature and as if inside is unnatural. Nature is not that which is outside. Nature is that which deconstructs itself. Nature isn't still. If we start speaking of nature as the still outside, then we're repeating the same paradigm of colonizing the outside. Like, that's the wild nature. I think everything is nature. So we're learning to give gratitude to objects, we play games with our children where we invite them to be grateful for even computers, to see things and objects as beings because they shape us. There's so much to say, brother, but yeah, we can talk later. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. I would invite you, though, to explore Swaraj University. It's by a brother of mine called Manish Jain, and he's doing a great work there. Lots of principles on the website, too, that you can explore. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for tonight. Kind of along the same lines, you said earlier on, the more educated you are, the more cut off from context you are. Yeah. And I love the idea of context being more important than content in education. And you know, we're part of a, a new movement trying to create an education system that focuses more on context than content. And I just yeah. would like your thoughts on yeah. that. So schooling, the whole schooling paradigm, the factory model, which is premised and is a modern project, is based on the idea of enlightenment. That is, knowledge is above context. If we can arrive at this place of knowledge, which is beyond the material, which is universal, 
then it doesn't matter. Context doesn't matter because it's universal. Place doesn't matter. And in universalizing knowledge that way, we've canceled out context-based specificities and ways of thinking about the world and arranging the world and arranging life. And this is the problem with modernity, with its universality and saying everything is this way. And so how that has played out for us, especially in colonized settlements who are now auto-colonizing themselves, is that we banned our language. I learn, I know more about America than I know about my country. Now what's happening now is decoloniality or decolonization studies are inviting us to reconnect with place, to give names to our place, to excavate the, the soil and unearth the names that have been buried. And so we're returning to our languages, we're returning to other technologies that invite us to be present. School is changing. It's no longer in that boxed framework. It's spilling out, if you will, out of the boxes. And that is inspiring new curriculums and new learning projects like Swaraj University. So my grandmother's wisdom matters. The goat herder down the street is wise and a philosopher. Those are philosophies that are largely in the academic world where I'm based is largely invisibilized. It's canceled out. It's excluded. It's only Marx and Freud and these white mustachioed guys that I learned to think of as philosophers. But I'm learning to engage my own grandmother. I'm learning, and I never met my grandmother, but I mean the grandmothers of my people. I'm learning to see them as holders, custodians of wisdom, of knowledge. I'm learning to sit at their feet. I'm learning to engage the very notion of elders, which I think is largely missing in the West. We just have old people. And sometimes I come and I say, oh, my elder. And they're like, no, I'm not old. I'm not old. And I'm like, I'm really respecting you by calling you an elder. It's largely missing here. But the real promise here is that the world is surprising. The idea that the world is surprising is lost in most enlightenment models in the conventional school. Because in the conventional school, the world is already figured out. It's there in the textbook. Just regurgitate. Cram it in your head and regurgitate when we ask you in an examination. But in the world outside of those frameworks, the world is still emerging. It's still being made. It's surprising. It's enchantment is not in short supply. So that's my own education. I call myself a recovering psychologist because I'm trying to unlearn Freud, and he still haunts me every day with his huge mustache. He still haunts me every day, but I'm learning from the people that are around me as custodians of wisdom. I'm learning from my own child. That's my education. It doesn't have a name, it won't come with a PhD, but she's just as wise. Yeah. Thank you for your generous talk. So this work of looking at ourselves with wide open eyes, you know, seeing things as they really are, seeing our complicity. I feel like I've been trying to do this for a long time, like intellectually. Yeah. You know, I understand the assemblage and all of that. And more recently, sort of spiritually and emotionally, and really sitting with myself as a human being, which includes the darkness, you know, it includes the fear, the pride, the greed, the yeah. anger. This is really hard work. <laughs> and it's very hard not to be derailed by 
guilt, you know, white guilt, or I need to do something good, I need to be virtuous. It's really hard not to verge into a kind of insanity or a kind of, I can't live. Seeing this clearly, and I have little children too, which makes it harder, because <laughs> I see their future ahead of them. And I wondered if you have anything to offer in terms of, you know, for this work, it really needs a lot of courage and resilience, and how, how to find that. Does that make sense as a question? It does. Um, I doubt that I can um, truly approach or even begin to hold the, because I'm feeling not just what you said, but what you didn't say. And I doubt I could hold it with much integrity this evening. It's the focus of what we'll be doing in the workshops through the weekend, which is making sanctuary. And I'll go deeper into this, but I'll just say this for now, that our work is intergenerational. That means it's not upon us to get it or to be saved. That is still premised on the idea that we're individuals and that our lives are still isolated from other lives and our death is terminated. And then how many brownie points have I gotten before I died? Was I finally decolonized? Did I finally get what all these teachers said? Even our failure matters. Even our failure to actually do these things, they matter and they will stream down and ripple out into the world at large. I like to say, for instance, that a filled star shines brighter than a coherent one because a filled star has bust its guts into the universe and become stardust and it's come into our skin and made us humans. So our failure, even the things you're struggling with today, the threadbare edges of the fabric that you're weaving, it might be the threads of the fabric that another generation uses to compose myths and stories of emancipation. It doesn't end with you. It doesn't end with me. That's why I'm very suspicious of the idea of woke, like I've arrived. We're not arriving here. No halos for anyone here. It's an ongoing struggle, and we can only approach it modestly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. That was Bio Akumalafe, the author of These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home. Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Thank you.